Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Yo! Welcome into episode 124 of the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes, and I'm so happy that you clicked onto the play button for this particular episode. I told you that I was toying with some stuff when it came to House of L, and I wanted to do some stuff that I'm interested in doing, and some of it is is cultural phenomenon stuff, too. I mean... I'm not just talking about a random play in this episode. I'm talking about Hamilton. I'm talking about a a play that for Disney has made a whole lot of money with people subscribing to Disney Plus so that they could watch Hamilton. I wanted to talk about it. So I brought in some heavy hitters to, to help me talk about this subject. I really appreciate that you guys have taken to what Connor and Joe are doing with the baseball podcast It's going to move to its own feed soon, but so far the feedback has been great, and as long as there's a baseball season, they're going to be talking about baseball. I told Connor, I said, listen, um, I'm someone who likes contingencies, so in case there is a baseball season, I want you and Joe to start thinking about other things that you can talk about, and I imagine with Connor, it'll be rock climbing. That's a thing for him. He's really good at it. Good old Quinoa Jenkins himself. Anyway, before we get to the conversation about Hamilton, and I tell you about the incredible people that I have on this podcast, I want to tell you why this podcast is possible. It's because of people like David Hochberg. If you're thinking about buying a home or refinancing a home, you need to talk with my buddy David Hochberg. I don't have a funny thing to drop in here, although I guess I could. I could go Chris Tannehill and drop something in here. 56david.com is where you can find David's website. You can call him at 855-56-DAVID. And when you call him, tell him that you heard about him on this podcast about Hamilton. I think that he would appreciate that, being someone who works in finance. I'm telling you, straight up and down, he helped me buy my place he helped me refinance my place in Kenwood this is a guy that will help you out so 56david.com or 855-56david Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender NMLS number 1124061 okay so let me give you some background on why I'm doing this podcast in the first place a long time ago Mel went to go see Hamilton and she was like, you're going to love Hamilton. And I was like, I don't know. Everyone likes it. So I don't know if I'll like it, which is a really dumb attitude to have on things. But sometimes I'm dumb. 
my colleague at DePaul, my friend Joanne, she was like, hey, I got these tickets to see Hamilton. I can't go. Do you want to buy them? I said, all right. I asked Mel if she would go again, and she's like, yes, absolutely. So we went, and I instantly became a fan of this musical. I'm not someone that really has a big background in theater. I respect it. Like, my father is big into Shakespeare, so I know a little bit about theater, but musical theater is something that's very foreign to me. And there hasn't been a lot of stuff that reaches me. Like, I get the cultural importance of rent, for example, or hairspray. Like, I get the cultural importance of it, but it hasn't reached me in a way that Hamilton did. So I'm watching this play. It's right up my alley because I love history. And in college, as an undergrad, American history and African history were the things that I studied. Strangely enough, not African-American history. But you can kind of put both of those things together and get a really good idea about what African-American history is like. Anyway, I kind of became obsessed with it. I got the soundtrack. I listened to the soundtrack maybe once or twice a week. And then when it was offered on Disney Plus... I was like, man, this is going to be dope to be able to watch it. So I thought that I'd talk about it. A lot of people watched it. I figured it might be something good for us to really delve into. But you know how we do on this podcast. I wasn't just going to do it alone. I don't think that I'm qualified. I can tell you what I liked about it as a fan of the play, but I don't know if I'm qualified to interpret it. So I brought some friends along. These two people are pretty amazing. Melissa Foster Baracy and Matt Baracy. Matt's her husband, get it? Me and Foster go back to birth. She is literally my oldest friend. Wait, I said that wrong because it makes it sound as if she's the oldest person that I know. My friendship with Foster is the oldest, literally the oldest relationship that I have. Ah, there, there we go. Why? Because our parents are basically like family. So we've known each other since we were little teeny tiny babies. We also went to high school together. Foster was at HF when I was at HF. She was in theater because she's incredible. You'll understand when you hear the podcast. She took that to create a successful career working as a performer. And now she's a musical theater professor at Northwestern. On top of that, she's a vocal consultant for the Lyric Opera and Notre Dame University. Oh, and a bunch of her students have been in shows like Aladdin, Tina Turner Story, Wicked, The Lion King. And yes, Hamilton. You should see her photo gallery of people in Hamilton. It happens sometimes that you end up marrying someone who has similar interests. Her husband, Matt, is this incredible creative. He actually writes operas. He's got an MFA of musical theater writing from NYU. He teaches out at Lake Forest Academy. 
and at Carthage College. These two people are incredible. I am honored that they would even take the time to be on my podcast and talk to me about this musical in a way that I am not capable of talking about this musical. But yeah, I go back a ways with these people. And they have a a daughter that is just a superstar. You're going to be seeing her in stuff. Commercials, television series, Broadway. Because when you add Foster to Baracy, it is, you'll see. Ten years from now, I'm going to be inviting their daughter onto the podcast. And she's going to be too important to come on the podcast. But maybe I'll be like Marin by then and, and I'll be like a big enough deal. Anyway, I sat down with these two and we talked about the play, especially now that it is on Disney Plus and it's available. The conversation goes in a lot of different directions, as it should. We talk about how in, it's incredible theater, the musical aspect of it. We also talk about how the middle has shifted and politics has changed. And the way that we viewed Hamilton in 2016 is different than the way we view it in 2020. There's a lot to sift through in this episode, but if you like Hamilton, you're going to learn some stuff. I know I did. So episode 124 of the house of L podcast, we talk Hamilton with two people who know it. Professor Melissa Foster and Professor Matt Baracy. I'm so thankful that you guys are available for this. Like, this has been one of the things that I've really wanted to do. So here, here's kind of what's going on. Like, I do my podcast, and I talk with media people, like, all the time. And I interview them about what it is they do. But recently, knowing that I have other interests, I've been branching out into talking about other things that interest me. Like, for example, I did a podcast last week that was just a roundtable about the the Rocky franchise, just for no reason. I decided that I was going to do a podcast about Rocky, and it turned out great. Uh, it was awesome. By the way, on the podcast, I've interviewed both my mother and my father. They got their own nice. episodes, and it's really, really great like both episodes are really good so I'm all over the place I'm going to do an episode record an episode later on this week about Roberto Clemente and why I love Roberto Clemente because he was unapologetically black and unapologetically Puerto Rican so anyway that's why I'm starting to do stuff that interests me and that's why I wanted to talk with you guys about Hamilton so so let me give you some background on this before we, we we start Four years ago when Hamilton came out and I was like, man, this, this Hamilton thing, like, this is like kind of a big deal. It was one of those things where so many people liked it that I was predisposed to not liking it and I didn't want to go see it. So then fast forward to two years ago when my colleague at DePaul was like, Hey, you should go see Hamilton because I think you really like it. And I was like, I don't know. Eh." And she goes, I have tickets. I can't use them, buy them from me and go see the show. So Mel and I went and we saw it and I loved it. And then I downloaded the the soundtrack and I absolutely love it. Like it's one, I listen to it once a week. Like that's how deeply it's gone. The other, the pendulum has swung the other way. 
So since I have two people here that literally teach theater, I wanted to pick you guys brain about why, why he was able to pierce my, my troglodyte type view of theater to get me to go to the theater. So professor Foster, I'm going to start with you. What was it about Hamilton that got people like me to embrace theater? Well, where do I start? And first of all, why didn't you already embrace theater? It's amazing. Well, I do love theater. Like I do, <laughs> I love good singing. Like I, but I'm not someone that I don't know when the shows are coming out. If someone tells me there's a good show, like I'm likely to go see it, but it's not something that's really in my purview that that's, that's why. I'm totally kidding. That's like you saying, why don't you watch every baseball game or something? And I would say, well, I mean, I watched the world series, you know? Um, so it's the same thing. If I have a dire sports question, I, I try to get in touch with Lawrence to help me answer it. I'm like, I'm going to be put on the spot about sports. I don't know what to do. And I get help. So, I, can, I can help with but, those things. But you do help me. Uh, so in answer to your question, what I think, oh, I don't know. There's so many reasons. And I think, I think we might have to pick it apart a little bit if that's okay sure. with you. I think that authenticity and, and I'm going to say coolness, but that has a co- like a caveat that I want to talk about too, plays a big part in that right so hip-hop and rap has definitely been in other musicals and they've either not been successful or people haven't liked them or or they've thought they were corny and not representative of actual hip-hop i think that this one because the creators of this show lin-manuel miranda and his co-creators alex lacamoire etc are huge hip-hop fans huge. In fact, when they were writing this musical and casting this musical, when they sent the casting thing out, they, for every single character, they wrote a musical theater act, a character, iconic character, and hip-hop artist that you should be thinking of when you're thinking of this role. Oh. I actually have that list if you need me to reference it. If you're like, what did they say about so-and-so? I can find it in my on my desk somewhere so they are i mean they are not kidding around with with how they feel about this and so i think that there's i mean we can talk about that more and we can you know delve into that deeper if you want but i think that that and because true rap and hip-hop tells the story of how people are are feeling either via depending on which coast and what you know if you want to get into all of that like is it an escape or is it you know an outlet or an expression that's a big that's that's reason number one for me if you look at the history of musical theater and you line it up with the history of pop music and i mean any kind of popular music hip-hop rock jazz before that if you go back to the origins of musical theater so we're talking about the early 20th century. We're looking, talking about 1904 into the 40s. Pop music and musical theater are exactly the same. We're talking about Tin Pan Alley, like tunes that people liked, that people played on their pianos or bought sheet music to or sang in a bar were songs from Broadway shows, one to one. And that that stays for the first half of the 20th century. And then the languages start to get different. 
primarily because rock and roll comes along in all rock adjacent forms. But you still have musical theater as a pretty mainstream interest to the extent if you look at. So My Fair Lady had a cast album in 1956 and everybody's grandparents have this album. Everybody white, anyhow, has this album. This is like the <laughs> uh, this is the musical theater equivalent of Frampton Comes Alive or Thriller. Like everybody's got this album. And if you see it, it's a white album with a Hirschfeld drawing of Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews on the front. And it was the biggest album of 1956. It was on the Billboard, the Billboard Top 20 for 15 weeks between 1956 and 1959 and 19 weeks in the UK. And the fifth longest run ever on, I think, the UK Billboard charts. Ten years later, in 1965, it was still the 29th biggest album on the Billboard charts. So that's how like mainstream musical theater is in the 50s and even into the 60s. Uh, and that album now is three times multi-platinum, although it took from 1959 to 1986 for it to get to three times multi-platinum. And we'll come back to that figure in a second. But as you go, now we're into the 60s. And once you get to the late 60s, popular music and what's being sung on stage are wildly divergent, right? FM radio and Fiddler on the Roof bear no resemblance to one another. Now there's exceptions through the seventies and eighties and nineties. There's, I mean, there's Jesus Christ Superstar and hair. Those crossed over into the mainstream. And then you have in the eighties, you have Phantom and Les Mis that didn't cross over into radio play, like as a pop piece of music, but it did cross over into the mainstream culture as something everybody went to see. And then by the 90s, all you get is Rent, which is much less successful than Les Mis and Phantom. And it kind of has a crossover album. And they put out a concept album that had like, like there was a Stevie Wonder 98 Degrees cover of a Rent song that kind of played in the Gap or Starbucks there for a couple of weeks, but <laughs> nothing like the previous days. And then nothing. I mean, what is being sung, the language of what is sung on, on the musical theater stage and the language of what we listen to for pleasure in our car bear no resemblance anymore until you get to Hamilton. And suddenly Hamilton sounds a lot more like music that people actually want to listen to. And Hamilton is six times, six times multi-platinum and it did it in four years. So we basically go from no sales for musical theater cast albums or like nothing that makes it a dip compared to real music and real music, you know, popular music. And then suddenly Hamilton comes along and it's legitimately selling millions of copies again. So I say all that to say that there is something cool and authentic and genuine about the score of Hamilton that makes people want to listen to it on the treadmill and in the car and for pleasure and not just musical theater nerds. And I'm a musical theater nerd, so I, I don't say this with, with, with any kind of insult, but they want to listen to the Hamilton soundtrack for pleasure not just to like golf clap to it when they're feeling esoteric i went back and i was looking at a video of at the time lin-manuel miranda did a preview of hamilton this is 2009 he did a preview for president obama and and michelle obama and there were a lot of people in the audience that were like what the hell is this and then I saw John Stewart tear it apart, like said it was just silly and 
So how do we go from that place of it being so out there and so different to look at the history of American politics and honestly the, the history of the birth of the country as a joke being used, being fused with hip hop to it being the biggest thing and everyone getting awards for it. Correct me if I'm wrong, both of you, but I think, you know, the Hamilton mixtape, like there's that whole side project that was released after Hamilton came out. I think the original intent was just that it was going to be a song cycle of some sort. I don't think it was originally intended to be put on the stage. Is that right, Matt, or am I wrong? He, he says that's the case. Interestingly, so there's a movie version of his musical In the Heights that's going to come out. I mean, it's hard to say when movies are going to come out right now, but it's in the can and it's going to come out pretty soon. So he had already won a Tony Award for Best Musical for a Rap Musical, but it's not a musical that really broke into the mainstream in any way. I mean, it, it won Best Musical. It made millions of dollars. This was not, this was no flop, but you can't buy a copy. You didn't buy a copy of it by the checkout at Whole Foods the way you do Hamilton or at the counter at Starbucks or, you know, kids, you know, it, it was, it stayed in the realm of musical theater fans, but it did have rap in it. So the Broadway world was already used to him bringing rap to the stage. But I think something that was this aggressively conceptual with the historical aspect of it, um, he didn't know that he, uh, per him, per the big Hamilton book and his interviews, didn't think he could necessarily get away with it. So he thought just like the original Jesus Christ Superstar album that had like the lead singer of Deep Purple, that Brown, that Brown double album, um, that was supposed to, that they kind of floated that as a concept. And then people were like, hey, we like this rock musical, put it on stage. So almost immediately. And that, that video you're talking about, Lawrence, with the White House is fascinating to watch. Yes. Because he kills it and the audience is very excited. But when he gets, he sings the opener. And when he's rapping, everybody's like, just their their minds are racing they love it but when he gets to alexander hamilton my name is alexander hamilton everybody laughs and it's not a good laugh yeah they don't they don't like that and i've i mean i've seen that video that video is iconic right because exactly what you said the the huge pendulum swing from that to where we are now who wants to see a musical about a man that like did stuff with banks and is on a bill is it 10 maybe i mean you know what i mean it's like what and you know like why why do we want to see that and so and it was so serious my name is alexander hamilton you know i mean it just seemed it seemed almost like is this a parody is he is he pulling our leg you know what is going on here i think that it needed the theatrical element for that to make any sense i think just hearing that starkly serious, regardless of the fact that it's Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, most successful hip hop musical theater writers of the time. Even, even he, I don't think could pull that off completely out of left, you know, left field, out of context for the first time. And it's funny. That's just my opinion. Watching it. And I, I I mean, obviously I'm watching this and this is day, you know, post facto. President Obama seems to get it. Like, as, as you're watching him, yep. he seems to get it. Everyone else in the room is kind of like, I don't know what this is. This guy is clearly earnest in, in wanting to do this, but I'm not sure how to react. Is this a bit? Is this supposed to be funny? 
And he's kind of like, yeah, because you I imagine him as a student of history, especially presidential history, Mm -hmm. where he understands the importance of Alexander Hamilton in the construction of the Republic. But everyone else in the room is just kind of like, whoa, what's up with this guy that's up here doing this thing Mm -hmm. with the thing? Well, I don't think we don't think because spoilers, we talked about this before we before we came on with you. Uh, We don't know that Hamilton could have made it to these heights outside of the Obama era. We think that the cultural ground was fecund for this to blossom. I mean, if he'd written it and it had just been a concept album for musical theater nerds, would it, it would still be the arguably the greatest musical ever written, inarguably one of the greatest musicals ever written. It would just be in a time capsule and not be on everybody's lips and not be on Disney+. Plus. But we think the values of the Obama era moment and the things it caused us to celebrate and look for laid a fertile ground for Hamilton to have this kind of wild success. I was going to ask you guys about that too, but I think that it's interesting that you have, and I've seen a couple of pieces written about this, the bookend of when the play comes out versus when the movie comes out Mm -hmm. and how all of a sudden the play has different weight and gravity in 2020. And we thought that it had incredible gravity in 2015 Mm-hmm. So, so Professor Foster, I'll ask you, what do you think that says about where we were and where we are as a people and as a country? Oof. Okay, here I go. <laughs> so 2015. Now, I'm just going to say it. And, you know, I obviously I respect I respect everyone's political view as long as they agree with mine um but um just kidding but i love barack obama i love the obamas i love michelle obama i think they like walk on water i think they are great i'm making a lot of hand gestures because i'm in theater over here but you can't see me and so i think we were at this time where at least i mean at least i was feeling great about our country, feeling great about, in my opinion, one of the most successful presidents because of the hole he had to dig us out of. I won't make turn this into a political discussion, but but I remember, if I can just segue into just a, a really 30 second anecdote, I remember being at a New Year's Eve party, having getting into some discussion with a stranger who said, there's no more racism. I mean, we all heard this statement, you know, well, there's no more racism because, I mean, you know, there's a black president. I'm like, well, okay, that's ridiculous. And But that was the first time that that had happened, and that was right after he was elected. And I came came up against that, and I was very shaken and upset by that concept because that was the first time that had been, you know, that was still, that was still bubbling up, and I don't think people had had the nerve to say that yet. But there was also still a lot of stuff brewing, you know, negative stuff brewing underneath the surface. And then Hamilton comes out and there's representation on the stage like I hadn't seen before. And not only was it representation of people of color, it was a non-traditional casting, you know, because founders of our country were certainly not African-American and, you know, Latina and 
and Latino, and you know, Asian et cetera. American, and right. so fact that that got turned on its head and that we were putting it into a hip hop, which I think of, you know, obviously as a black grassroots culture, it was just this amazing explosion of pride for me. And so, and I think for a lot of other people and for, you know, not just black people, but people that were for progressive movement towards true equity, right? Well, and then November 2016 happens and a new president is elected and then some things happened between 2016 and 2020 that maybe, or 2019, we'll just even say that, that don't make me feel great about the the direction that this country is going with political decisions and equality and open-mindedness. We get there and then some things start to happen with immigration. Yes, I was going to say with immigration. I was going to, I was trying to say, I don't know how PC I have to be. So I was trying to, you know, like say what you want. Big and, you know, general, general. Say, yeah, say I mean, whatever I mean, you want. Like, I don't want you to get to, get in trouble, but say what you want. Feel free, Matt. I mean, feel free to, to list and also to pull me back because now you now I can look like that person that you have to hold back who wants to be like, let me at him um, at our president, you know. But yes, I mean, in what way can this the leaders of our country currently be racist, homophobic, unaccepting in every single way? I mean, build a wall. Is that really is that really the slogan that we're going to go with? I mean, it's just let me just ugh, taking away rights from everybody, taking away rights from the dreamers taking away rights from trans community, taking away rights from, you know, oh, just Women. from class, you know, class rights. I mean, blah, on and on and on. We don't want this podcast to be six hours. That's happening. And we're sort of watching the America that we thought we were moving towards in the eight year Obama era sort of crumbling as far as I'm concerned. That movie, you know, Disney announced that that was going to be, Hamilton was going to be on months ago. I mean, months. I mean, I feel, I feel like even before we were in. It might the, have been a year ago. Yeah, it was, it was before the pandemic even. It wasn't, that wasn't because of the pandemic. That was, that was long, long in the works, which kudos to Lin-Manuel Miranda. There's a lot of debate in the theater community over whether or not that will hurt future ticket sales. And some people think it'll help ticket sales. And some people say, well, that was really generous of them. And some people will say, well, they made a lot of money for that deal. I mean, like, we could talk about all that. But I still think it was pretty awesome that a lot of people who can't see that musical for multiple, multiple reasons can now see that musical for $6.99. If you can stream Disney Plus for one month for $6.99, you can see Hamilton. And if, if either it's not in a city by you, you can't afford a ticket, you can't get a damn ticket. The reasons are, are endless. And now it's accessible. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled by that. It comes out, not only are we in a pandemic, which is hurting so many people. So I'm certainly not saying it's hurting, you know, the BIPOC community more, but those are some of the hardest hit people. So that's happening. And then we get, we get Ahmaud Aubrey, we get Breonna Taylor, we get George Floyd. Then we get what happens after that. And I'll, I'll let Matt interject a little bit because I've been talking forever. And then this comes out. So, I mean, I, it's, it's, I mean, where we were when this musical came out, which in, in my head, I mean, no, was life perfect? Hell no. 
were we, was, you know, was America perfect? Not at all. But it certainly wasn't where we were or where we were, are now today, right? With the multitude of problems. So I just, I mean, and you know, that, that can open, you know, we could go in a million directions with this, but I just feel it starts a lot of conversations that maybe wouldn't have even been started a year ago. It's value and its resonance is going to change as culture changes around it. So coming out of the 90s and the 2000s culture, where there is a, there is a thriving black culture in America, and a, that even crosses over into white consumers, but there's still, and I'm theorizing here just from a artistic scholar perspective, but in the 90s and 2000s, your big shows are Friends, which takes place in a New York that has no black people. And Sex in the City that takes place in a, a New York that has no minorities. And are there black TV shows? Absolutely. Are they popular? Yeah. But they're over on UPN and the CW or whatever it was called, the WB, right? So there's popular black shows, but they're, they're marginalized. Hamilton comes along in a different cultural moment, imperfect cultural moment, but now we've got a black president. Beyonce and Jay-Z are... American cultural royalty, like the biggest American cultural royalty. Now we've got Shondaland, you know, we've got a primetime, primetime shows with very integrated cast or, or more integrated cast anyway, normalizing interracial relationships on TV. You know, we've got a little girl and we watch the shows she's watching on Disney plus all these Disney channel shows from across the past 15 or 20 years. And you see those shows being all white shows, or maybe there's a black one to very integrated casts in the more recent shows and even with interracial romance on kids shows a big change in a very short amount of time culturally so hamilton comes about in this time where suddenly we're celebrating diversity on our airwaves and in our cultural products and so it seems like it's a celebration of representation and we go look at these latinx and black people and I mean, there's Asians in the cast. Like it's a, it's, it is a truly diverse cast with a largely black uh, language that's being spoken on the, you know, musical language um, in a traditionally white context, which is musical theater. And we love that. Then Trump comes along and it's no longer part of a larger celebration. It's a palliative to the horror that we're all facing. And this is when Pence goes to the show and the cast calls him out and the audience boos him. Now, suddenly, uh, Hamilton isn't just a party. It's a balm. It's church. I mean, we need it now. And then Black Lives Matter comes along at, and the Disney broadcast happens in the thick of that. And now there's a new context. And now we're looking at it. I don't know how far we're going to go down this rabbit hole tonight. But now there's a controversy where we go. You know, I love these performers. I love this craft. I love the show. It makes me happy. And we look back at the concept of it, which is a bunch of slave owners played by black people. And we go, that's kind of messed up. Like there may be a, uh, there may have been a misstep in the first step of the show. And now, and people have always said that they said that since the show came out, but anybody who said it's been kind of pushed back, like, Hey, this is the best show ever. I understand it's a little weird that black people are playing slave owners, but like, shut up. Cause it's the best show ever. Right. And now we're going, ah, we're taking a look at just representation. Isn't enough. Is there something a little bit funky 
about this show. Can this show be all of our favorite shows and also have a flaw in it where we go, I know the show's only five or 10 years. How, how old is the show? When did it, when was it on? When did it get the Tony? Uh, 2016, right? 2016, maybe. Okay. Yeah. So it's a new show, but culture's moving faster. So, you know, shows that were progressive in the middle of the 20th century look racist now. I mean, Showboat had oh. the first integrated cast on a Broadway stage, but it also had blackface. So you don't look at Showboat and go, man, that's progressive. But in 1928, it was progressive as all hell. South Pacific had the song You've Got to Be Carefully Taught that is called, that is referenced in Hamilton. They wouldn't play that on the radio or let the tour come through the South because that show was so progressive. Now, when your community theater does South Pacific, you're like, this show is racist, right? And now we're not going to say Hamilton's, I mean, racist that's a little crazy but culture's moving faster now now we look at a show from four years ago that has been our touchstone for what's what's celebratory of diversity in america and we go hey there's a little something wrong with this but i think that through oh well more than a little something wrong but i but i agree with everything you're saying well, i don't want to dog on it but yeah, yeah no i'm not I, I mean it's pretty screwed up <laughs> however but I, but but I, at the same time and I, you know, I, when, when we talked about talking to Lawrence, I said, oh, Lawrence, I have a lot of mixed feelings right now. I don't know if I should talk about this show. Um, so, you know, here I am talking about this. But uh, how great the show is, like the fact that it can mean all these different things in four short years can play vastly different cultural roles and keep this conversation. I mean, this is the this is the show that has launched a million think pieces, a zillion blogs on all your, you know, in, on your slates and your voxes and your vultures. Like they write about it every day for four years and there's new things to write about. And flawed though it may be, there is such value in a show that can keep people talking and talking in new contexts across multiple cultural epochs. And I, and I give Lin-Manuel credit where one of my favorite lines is in, in the cabinet battle where he says, you know, a civics lesson from a slaver. Hey, neighbor, your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. I mean, that that itself is a bomb. Like, that's a bomb of a line to, to throw in there to make us think about who who are we actually rooting for? Who Who is the person that, that we're looking at and saying, yes, all these great things that Thomas Jefferson has said and written and done – it's you can look at them in a vacuum if you want, but at the mm -hmm. end he's going home and raping S mm -hmm. Sally Hemings, you know. Which, and she's in the show. Exactly. There's a line, you know, where he says, "Sally, be a dear and go get me something," you know. Right. So, so I mean, I I do give credit for. I don't know if if we've seen political discourse in theater that was as explicit. As this guy right here, this guy owns slaves. And and we should take that into account when mm -hmm. trying to, to quantify his brilliance. When the words that he writes really only matter for heterosexual white male landowners. That's the only people that he's actually talking about being free. And, and I, I love that juxtaposition. It's one of the things that I truly enjoy about it. And when at the beginning, when Hamilton and Lawrence are talking about the idea of slavery and why, why it's horrible. And, and 
So I, I understand where the criticisms come from. And I think all of those criticisms are valid. And I think you guys make excellent points about, about them. And I think that you're right, Matt. The, the idea of when we look back 30 years from now, will it still feel as good to sing the songs of Hamilton as it's felt over the last five years? We're all happy that there's black and brown skin on the stage and that hip-hop is being used as a musical and textual language for a piece of middle-brow slash high-brow culture. And the fact that he jumps in occasionally and says, hey, these guys are slavers, don't forget. And he does. I mean, it's, it's great the way several times in the show he jumps in and he says, ah, they're being hypocritical. That flies in 2016. In 2020, jumping in and pointing and jumping back out doesn't fly. But he didn't write it in 2020. He wrote it in 2016, and it was revelatory in 2016. Um, so I hope it's tough. I mean, time is can be really, really cruel to, to pieces. I hope we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater 30 years from now looking back at this show because the level of craft is there and the value that it had for us as a society, the value that it had for performers of color, for kids who can listen to the show and look to the show. I hate to lose all that, but time does march on and sometimes things get kind of ground up in the gears professor foster can i ask you a question about performance because i know that this is your expertise i'd love to know what was your favorite performance and why was it your favorite it depends on what lens i'm answering this from when you watch a movie or you know a a, a, a play or or something sometimes you sort of relate to a character or you see yourself in a character and i see you as angelica by the way why thank you why so do i why so does everyone right and i love that i take that as a huge compliment uh i'm teaching a class right now and they said that they think i'm angelica and i'm like oh my gosh everyone gets an a so um you know but <laughs> A plus, actually. Um, so, no, but in some ways, you know, Angelica Schuyler is my favorite character. If we're talking about, you know, what, you know, what was my favorite performance, I just think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go with David Diggs for a multitude of reasons. And one, because, first of all, he was not, he is not a musical theater performer or was not before this show came along. He was, and that's not why he's my favorite, but he was he heavy in the hip hop MC rap scene, right? And I think Thomas Jefferson is a really hard role to play because I think there's a lot of different sort of nuances that you can bring to that character within a box. He falls into this weird, he's not the, you know, protagonist of the play. He's not the antagonist of the play. So. I think sometimes that, that character can be hard to flush out. I was giddy watching him. First time I saw this, I didn't know anything about Hamilton. It was pretty early, I mean, it was when it was still off-Broadway. So, you know, <laughs> I know, Matt, I knew I was gonna get made fun of that. I knew I was gonna get made, I was just like, I'm not gonna say it, I'm not gonna say it, I'm not gonna say it, but if I don't say it, I'm gonna look stupid. That's, um, that's what was, we call yeah. a major flex. Do you wanna explain that? Do you wanna explain why you just made fun of me real quick? It was definitely a major flex by you. 
Like that was a major flex that I saw Hamilton before Hamilton went to Broadway. Yes. Um, and let, you know, let me say if I, if I, let me just, you know, since I'm flexing, no, I'm kidding. I mean, edit this out, but um, I'll say I got, I also saw it in a great seat too. Um, and so, you know, I was, I was all up close and because, because of a favor from a friend, not because I'm important or something. First, I'm like, oh, this Lafayette, wow, can this, this I mean, how fast, I've, I don't know if I've seen the rap this fast, I mean, you know, on a stage. Uh, in a musical, certainly I haven't. And then act two comes along, and then now he's Thomas Jefferson. And I mean, when that scene, the Reynolds pamphlet, you know, and he's like, I'm going to be president now, and he's running around and he's throwing the papers and they're in a circle. I mean, like, I saw my brother, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, I saw, I mean, I was just, I was cackling and I don't, he's just magical. And I've seen the show a lot of times randomly. I just keep being Hamilton for some reason. That's on the, I did not mean that as a flex. I just keep strangely being a Hamilton. So I've seen a lot of Thomas Jefferson's and they're all fabulous, but there's something magical about David Diggs. I think he might be one of my favorite performances of all time. Wow. And I said it. Yeah, you did. Uh, Professor Baracy? Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't know if there's any bad performances in the, not only in the original cast, but a lot of times when shows go and sit down in a, t- in a city and they're open for a while and they're touring, as much as Broadway tries to keep the quality level consistent, that's nearly an impossible task. But, and for, for industry reasons, we have been blessed. We've seen Hamilton an embarrassing number of times. And two things that we noticed is one, it it never affects us. It never impacts us any less. Like you got to mop us up off the floor at the end of every performance of Hamilton we've seen. We're never bored. I mean, it came up on Disney Plus and we were like, oh, for, you know, because of industry context or because Melissa's going to listen for something or to someone, we keep seeing Hamilton. Maybe we won't watch it on Disney Plus. And then we watched the first second. And then three hours later, we'd watch the whole thing. We're dehydrated from crying. We're standing on the couch cheering. And we're like, this show never loses momentum. Like, this, it never gets boring. It's never not great. And we've never seen a bad performance in Chicago or in other cities. Like, they've done an amazing job of keeping the quality level up. So I can't, I can't pick my, fav- my favorite thing or my favorite person. It's just, it's a murderer's row of astounding performances and even things that could just be the throwaway you know washington comes out and sings a song and there's kind of an in-joke in musical theater that there's always like an old guy song in act two that stinks and you could name them all day and that's that's the the line like washington's farewell should be the more i cannot wish you from guys and dolls like just the old guy song that happens and everybody goes and you know it's 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 where in a rock concert you go to get a beer and it's great. And it, it, you know, and it blows the walls off the back of the house. So I can't pick a favorite. And, and I, I got to say one thing really quick. I got to say, because I said, you know, I love Angelica Schuyler. And I did not give a shout out to Renee Elise Goldberry. And she is, everyone stop what they're doing right now, actually, actually after this podcast. And go just watch Satisfied on Disney+. Plus. Just go watch that number and watch what she has to do. And I mean, everybody has to do a million things in that show. And we, we should, before, you know, before we end this call, we should finish Why You Like Hamilton because there's some things the ensemble really needs to be talked about. So we need to talk about that. And, and specific parts of that ensemble too, but I'll get to that in a second. If you watch that number, 
she's got to go from, I mean, first of all, her, everyone's rapping, but her rapping is, I mean, you can understand everything she says the first time you hear it. And that is so hard to, to do. And she has some really hard raps and some really hard rhymes to carry through. The vocals in that number are extremely demanding. Again, that happens all over the score by a lot of people, but I, I would say especially in that number where she's got to do both back and forth, back and forth. Wow. With riffing, which is its own beast, that I must, you know, I mean, that, that takes me months to teach somebody how to do just riffing, and she's doing it all. And then the acting. You've just got to watch it for the acting. Watch this one moment that I never had the opportunity to see, because even though I've seen her do it, it's, I didn't get to see it, you know, her face a foot from mine. She says something to somebody and then they turn their back and then she, she crumples, but then she has to rally. I mean, the subtleties and the pain, the visceral pain you feel for her, knowing what she sacrifices is, see, I'm about to start to cry. I have to mute myself. I wanted to ask you guys about the stage production versus the movie, and I want to do that in a second, but before I do that, I want to ask you about the part that I would have loved to have. And I'm sure you look at me and you go, oh, well, you totally want to be Thomas Jefferson, right? Or you totally want to be Hamilton. No, I want to be King George. Oh. And the reason that I want to be King George is because, first of all, you get the stage pretty much to yourself. And that performance was just awesome. It was just mm -hmm. great. And the ability to say horrible things <laughs> with a smile and a laugh and a wink at the audience where everyone understands exactly what it is that he's saying, but in, in a way that is so charming and endearing, I, I feel like that's the killer role. Like that's the role that you want. Because you're gonna go out there and you're gonna you're gonna destroy it and you're gonna have so much fun. It's the role. It's the one role where you can be as big as you want. The other roles, like you, there's a limit to how big you can be. Like the George Washington character can't be crazy. He has to be mm -hmm. George Washington. And I also think it's interesting that in, in whether it was the movie version or the stage version that the actor who plays George Washington is big. And I don't know if that's, that was on purpose by he Miranda. He always be big. Everybody who's played Washington seems to be of extreme stature. Yeah, and, and I wonder if that's on purpose, you know, Washington being bigger than life, like that sort of thing. But to me, the king, like that's the role that you <laughs> want because no one is expecting... When I was sitting there in the theater... People were like, what's happening right now? And we were just laughing our asses off because the delivery aspect of it. So I just wanted to share that with you, that if, if they, they granted me the wish of I could play any role, I would want to be King George. It's a great role. Well, it's a the, great role. One of the reasons it has such impact is that the show is so dense. It's so fast. It's so packed. There is no show. And there's a great article on 538 about the speed and density of the words in Hamilton versus Pirates of Penzance or versus Stephen Sondheim. I take a little bit of umbrage with the methodology, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in that, in that article. That show was coming at you 100 miles an hour from the very beginning, laying all this American history at you at this intense speed. And when the king comes out, it just completely stops. 
suddenly he's the only person on the stage. He's very measured in his delivery. And so it allows just the raise of an eyebrow or the shrug of a shoulder to just lay everybody out because it's such contrast to like the crazy freight train that's on either side of it. So it's the fact that they use the King that way in such a contrast to the rest of the show. Pretty brilliant. Pretty great. Let me ask you guys about the stage show versus the movie. Now, when thinking about watching the movie, I was like, am I really going to get more from it than what I got sitting in the balcony watching it on stage? I was blown away by how much more I got. And and Professor Foster, you you brought this up where you can now see her face. You can now see Angelica's face. You can see that she is wounded by making the wrong decision. You can see the the she conveys passion towards Alexander. And those are things that are a little difficult to see at a theater. I was really impressed by the movie's ability to take what I thought I knew about the play and add to it. As veterans of theater, what did you guys take from the movie version that added to your appreciation of the play? You could watch, I mean, we have watched it a few times now. I know some people watch it every day. Every time you watch it, you're going to find new treasures. Partially because it's so dense with activity, the choreography and the movement that the entire ensemble is doing almost every minute of the show. If you're sitting in the stage, your eyeballs can only go to one place. But if you can suddenly rewind, you can see, no pun intended, you can see a bunch of these moments. I think what it makes me appreciate, one is that, I mean, as someone who teaches acting to musical theater people, sometimes musical theater acting is not the finest acting in the world. Uh, right? I, I, I often joke like there's only two man-made things that you can see from space, the Great Wall of China and musical theater acting. And the fact that they were able to push those cameras right up those people's noses and still have their acting feel authentic is a big, big, big deal. So I think it shows that they cast that show really, really well. And I think the movie allows you to uh, a show that's so dense allows you to re-examine moments and see that the storytelling isn't just happening with the character in the front. The chorus members with their bodies are telling the story as well, creating the world and the given circumstances as well. That actually is a great question because as you know, I almost I didn't, did, almost didn't watch it and I'm so glad I did. I will say that I was ramping up to go to Hamilton because I was bringing my parents or... Um, or, you know, my in-laws or Vivian for the first time or, you know, whatever, whichever time I was seeing it, I would sometimes say, okay, okay, I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch the choreography this time. Like I, I gave myself sort of a different thing to pay attention to when I was seeing it live. One time I paid attention to the lighting, I kid you not, and I'm not a lighting person, but if you go back, the lighting is telling a story. And I mean, good lighting, that's what it's supposed to do. But I'm, I couldn't believe how much Hamilton, I'm like, wait, the lighting is a character even? Like an exquisite character in this show? Even the lighting. I mean, I, could, I left that show being like, I can't believe it. Even the lighting is spectacular. So each time I sort of would pay attention to a different element. Seeing the movie, it was so well shot. Because, you know, that's a live show, right? That sometimes when you watch a live musical that they shoot, 
there's a stationary camera and you know it lines up and it lets you sort of watch the show as if you're sitting in a chair from the audience well this i don't know how many cameras there were in this but the camera sort of helped me decide what to watch instead of me being uh inundated with visual information visual information right it showed me Angelica's reaction. I got to see it because it was close up because that camera was zoomed in on her instead of I wasn't watching a wedding scene with 16,000 dancers and, you know, all these other things going on. I got to see that. And I think that that, so I'm not going to say the camera work is the star. I'm going to say close ups. For instance, you know, there's a lot of argument and and the team, Lin-Manuel Miranda and the team won't, won't confirm or deny what is actually happening at that final moment. You know, what does oh, Eliza with the, with the scream at the end, yeah. Yeah, What what is that? Well, every time I've seen it live, I always think it's, I'm always trying to decide, and, but this is the first time I think I have a concrete opinion. But and I, I'm not gonna say I, I'm not, I don't know what it is. I mean, because only they would know, right? I mean, they wrote it, I don't know. It's fun because I should, I think I know what this is. I think I know what this is. And then I wound, I, you know, I, I rewound it and I played it. Uh, I said, Matt, watch this ending. And then you, Matt, said, oh, I know what this is. And then can I call you out? You, you're, yeah. you, and you started to cry because you, <laughs> you, and we agreed. And I don't think, and again, we might be wrong, but I didn't tell him what I was thinking. And then he, he saw the same thing because of close-ups. That's what this brought to me. I want to know what the theory is. <laughs> What's your theory? We could be so wrong, and then we'll, and then I'll look so I'll it, be so embarrassed. It's fine. It, it's fine because <laughs> we all have a theory on it. So, what's your theory? Okay, fine. I even tried to look it up, and like, and was was you that showed me this, or I looked it up, and someone said it was like a. They answered the question. I think it came up in my feed. Um, someone said, they answered the question. Someone from the team answered the, the question about what happened. And the answer was, she died. I mean, they really will not say. Um, but but there, I mean, there's a, there is a theme in the show throughout. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And her in her final monologue moment, sung, she says all the things that she did. She took his papers and she memorialized him. I mean, she made sure that, it, interestingly, you know, Jefferson and Hamilton were prolific writers. So they left behind many, many books of their view on what happened in the founding of the country. Because those books were curated and his papers were curated by her, we know Hamilton's perspective of what happened. Burr's papers went down in a shipwreck along with his daughter Theodosia. So think about that next time you hear that song. So we don't know his perspective. Jefferson hated him. Jefferson tried to get Burr hanged for treason for things that he did after the events of this musical. Everybody who hates Burr lived and had a lot of papers that told their sides of the founding of this country. Burr is lost to history. His papers are lost to history. So in that moment, she says, I took his papers. I founded the orphanage. I helped build the Washington Monument. Like all our heroes from this show, uh, I helped continue their story. Right. And, oh, wait, yeah. wait, wait. Oh, sorry. Can right. I interrupt really quick? Yeah. Yes. 
and this is another thing that the this is something that helped me realize this the close-ups the people that she's telling talking about like the washington monument well washington is standing behind her in white right the ghosts and they're all behind her and i up until this point i had already thought i i said oh i guess it's she's she's seeing alexander again because she kept saying like i can't wait to see you again and then i'm like oh she's seeing him but then I'm like well wait a minute when I'm watching the movie, he's walk, he leads her to heaven. So then, and then stands behind her. So I'm like, well, what the heck is she saying? And then she looks down and then she looks out and then she cries. And I'm like, oh my, see, I'm gonna start to cry again. I'm like, I think she's seeing the audience. So breaking the fourth wall, the orchestra pit and realizing that his story is told. Via the musical. Hamilton. So this was what I was thinking too. And I felt like it's hard to describe, but I felt like in the moment, Lin-Manuel Miranda, because the way that he walks around the stage towards the end makes me feel as if he is now no longer Alexander Hamilton. He is now Lin-Manuel Miranda and he is walking her and saying, look at what we've done. We've told your story. And then it's like, boom. Now I cried again. Well, that's, I mean, that's what theater is supposed to do. So look, I don't want to keep you guys any longer because you've already been super generous with your time. This was super educational, by the way, and I appreciate you both uh, for, for helping educate me. Probably too educational by half. I hope anyone listens to your podcast ever again after the after the. I know. <laughs> no, are you kidding? And gave everybody a snooze. Are you can kidding I me? Give a shout out to one to one thing. Sure. One thing. One last thing. Can if everybody can watch the bullet, just watch that. I'm track. glad that you brought it up because I had no idea about the bullet, and then I started reading about the bullet. Why? Why is that an important thing to digest as a viewer of Hamilton? Well, first of all, I think Ariana DeBose, who played the bullet on Broadway, is. A, a work of art in and of herself but that's such a directorial choice that i love when the ensemble becomes part of the prop or part of the stage or the scenery or whatever her slow motion she's she's showing that time is we're pausing time because of the way she's moving so slowly also i believe i'd have to go through and watch every moment so maybe i will just for fun but i feel like she's is she around every character right before they die? Correct. I feel like she is. And so I feel like she's also a foreshadowing tool. She's the harbinger of death. Ha. Huh. Glad I was right. Matt, what did you think you wanna, of the bullet? Matt, do you want to add anything? Because you direct things. so That's just indicative of how deep the craft on this show goes. We, When we think about the craft on the show, we think about the really tricky rhymes. We think about when there's a non-tuple internal rhyme in, you know, when Jefferson does his super fast stuff and there's alliteration everywhere and there's assonance everywhere. Easy to look at the craft when he goes, I'm in the cabinet. I am complicit in watching him grabbing at power and kissing and Washington ain't going to listen to this one dissonance. This is the difference. This kid is out. And there's 18 instances of assonance in those six lines. Like that's where you go. Oh, clearly this is a masterpiece of craft. But the more you watch it, you go, when he's singing his backstory in the opener, what, one of the people in the ensemble is his mother. And you realize that she's actually on a Hamilton's mother track through the whole show. And when they say Alexander got better, but his mom went quick, she is lifted up 
sideways and carried off and turned and like like gyroscopically rotated off the stage when she dies. When he sings Hurricane, in the eye of the hurricane, there is silence, and he recounts his, his childhood again. The same woman is playing the mother again, and they replay that moment where she's carried away. And then when he says, I see my mother on the other side as he's about to die, that same actress is on the balcony. It only took me uh, six viewings of Hamilton to figure that out. But that kind of depth is there for everything. Everything, the notion of satisfaction versus the notion of enough. The notion of going for something versus waiting for something. The notion of who lives, who dies, who tells your story. The notion of um, losing your cool. The notion of writing your way out of a problem. Writing a way out of your neighborhood. Writing your way out of your circumstance. All those themes are, they don't pop up once in one song. They are sewn throughout the entire piece. In the movement, in the lighting, in the text. And that's why it's so such a miracle that it's on Disney Plus where people can watch it a zillion times for only $7 a month. You guys rock my world, and I appreciate you so much for doing this. This was I feel like we should do this again for like something else. I don't know what else, but I feel like it could be pretty much anything. And I would love to. And we should just like hang out and like do pods on musical theater because I'm learning so much. Maybe that'll be, maybe those are the episodes. You guys teaching me about musical theater. We could pick a play, I could watch the play, then you guys could tell me about it. Oh, we got one. We've got one. There is a show. It was on Broadway. It was well-respected, but it came and went. It's called Passing Strange. It's by a downtown performer called Stu. And it's like if Jimi Hendrix wrote a musical. And it's, it's about, it's actually about the black suburban experience in a lot of ways. And it's about a performer and media person's experience in a lot of ways. And it was filmed by Spike Lee. And you won a bunch of awards it. at Sundance. So you can watch it filmed with the same quality that Hamilton is filmed. You can watch Passing Strange. And we could talk with you about that all day and all night. All right. Passing Strange. Yep. That, that's it. That's the next one. All right. I, I have that down as my endorsement. I know you guys got to go wrangle your daughter. So go wrangle your daughter. Thank you guys so much for this. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, boss. Thank, Thank you. you. Love you guys. Love you back. Man, that was a blast talking with those two about this play and its cultural significance and the music part of it, the performances. Like You can learn a lot. You can tell that they're educators and how seriously they take theater. It's great to get that type of feedback from people in the know. And as I said at the beginning, like, Foster and I go back to being babies together, like literally being babies together. So for us to be able to team up on a podcast is pretty dope. Like from a personal standpoint, that family, the the Fosters themselves, the Fosters and the Holmeses, and now we can add the Baracis to that too. Um, really great families. So to be able to hang out with Matt and Foster is dope because they're the ones I come to when I have questions about art because they're artists. I'm a quasi-artist, man. I consider myself a creative. I'm struggling with that now, like the whole idea of 
separating church and state between the creative aspect of doing House of L and the business side of it, I've kind of decided that I'm just going to take the leap on growing the business side of it. And so there's going to be some more steps that happen over the next few months with House of L. I don't know what it grows into, but I have my eye on a couple of people that I want to build podcasts for. We'll see if they let me. And we'll see if we can grow this thing out. So we're going to do some stuff. But your support is necessary in that. And honestly, we wouldn't be in a place to do a podcast like this without your support. The fact that we're up to a half a million downloads in the two years that the podcast has existed is crazy to me. Because the first episode we did, episode one back with, with Jason Benetti, I was like, if 500 people listen to this episode, I'll be happy. Here we are two years later, 6,000 people have listened to that episode. 20,000 people have listened to the, ep- the first episode with Jason Goff. I think it's actually that number is like closer to 25,000. 8,000 people have listened to the episode with Cheryl Scott. So we got off to such a great start. And we've sustained it and grown. And now this is actually kind of turned into a network. How weird is that? So we're going to keep trying to grow it. And I'm going to keep trying to give people opportunities to do stuff. And as long as you subscribe and give us a five-star rating. We were on Chartable this week in the top 40, which is amazing to me. We've made... The Apple iTunes top 200, like top 200 podcasts in the country. That's crazy. And so we're going to get some advertiser support. I'm going to try to make it so that it's not completely intrusive. And I don't, I don't want to go like the Patreon route. Not at least not yet. Like that's not something that interests me to make you pay for this content. I'm going to use the model of what I know from radio and try to do that model a little bit better. But this is like a business now. (laughs) It's so weird. Speaking of which, part of the reason that we can do this podcast is because of generous sponsorship from people like David Hochberg. 855-56-DAVID. Or go to the website. 56david.com. Do me this favor. If you end up contacting David, tell him that you heard about his service and his business on this podcast. Make the phone ring, as he would say. 855-56-David. Be like, hey, I'm looking to buy a home or refinance a home. Lawrence said you're a square dude. You'll help me. That's all we're talking about. We're talking about connecting people, a relationship here. That's that's my goal with the advertising, that there's a relationship here. And you'll see as we grow some of this advertising, we want to build this stuff out. So hit David up. Tell him that you heard about him on the podcast. And I promise you that he can help you, whether it's financial literacy stuff or just walking you through all of the things that it, go into refinancing home or buying a home. This is the guy that you want on your side. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender. NMLS number 1124061.
All right, I think I've done just about enough talking today. Done a lot, right? I'm out of control. Shout out to Regis, RIP. I thank you so much for your support. I really, really do. This next part is like tough because I'm going to dive into this business aspect of it. That's the one good thing that's happened with the pandemic and me spending more time like in front of projects that I want to do. I can do stuff like this episode. A big thanks to Professor Foster, to Professor Baracy for not only their extraordinary analysis, but their friendship too. It's meant a lot. Connor and Joe's baseball podcast is up. It's episode 123. Go listen to it. It's good. Please subscribe to this podcast. Write it a review. Give it five stars. We appreciate your support. Peace.